Welcome to Real Stories Tapes, True Crime, a weekly podcast from Real Stories, the online home of exclusive and award-winning documentaries from all over the world. My name is Stephanie Bauer, and this series introduces you to some of Real Stories' most compelling true crime stories in the form of a podcast. This episode is the first of a three-part story that begins with the mysterious death of a parachute jumper. The man's demise at first confounds the police, but then leads them to a case involving ex-cops, international drug smugglers, and a Kentucky crime syndicate known as The Company. This story is narrated by Anthony Call. This podcast episode is based on the documentary Dangerous Company. Some people's names have been changed. falls from the night sky. To understand this tragic death, police must follow a winding trail of clues. They struggle to learn whether it was merely an accident or something far more sinister. Each menacing clue heightens the mystery as police seek to uncover the identity of a man who kept dangerous company. Don't! Midnight. The plane flies under the radar. Come on, on. Two men prepared to bail out. It was a desperate act. But they were out of options. put the plane on autopilot, uncertain of the dangers that awaited them. They leapt into the vast night sky. The next morning in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sam Reed and his daughter went about their morning routine. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary until Sam's daughter headed outside for the morning paper. sprawled on their driveway. Dad? He didn't appear to be breathing. Sam's daughter called 911. Knox County 911. Knoxville Police Lieutenant Jerry Day was alerted. The dispatcher called us and said, we have a, a dead body and has a parachute attached to it. And it appears this individual has died from a fall. Car 32, check a 1091 at 19210 Pin Oak Circle, possible 1091 in the driveway. Car 32, 10-4, drive to Hall 
Police and paramedics arrived in minutes. Paramedics confirmed the man was dead. No one in the neighborhood had seen anything suspicious. The man must have fallen in the middle of the night. It appeared he had been dead for some time. His primary shoot had not deployed although his hand clutched the ripcord. It appeared the emergency chute opened on its own. We have someone who is uh, skydiving in the middle of the night, uh, uh, which is very unusual. If you do have skydivers, they're usually out uh, in the open areas in uh, daylight time. So we knew immediately that we had something that was going to be very unique. Nothing about the situation was what the officers expected, including the condition of the body. What we were expecting was to find uh, an individual who had massive wounds from impacting the ground. What we found was what appeared to be very minor superficial injuries. We weren't sure uh, why it was such a small amount of injuries in this individual. The officers expected to see a much greater amount of blood. His wounds didn't seem consistent with a violent fall to the ground. There was a cut underneath the chin, the uh, mouth was bleeding, the nose had been bleeding, and the teeth were uh, rearranged as if uh, the, the jaw had been impacted with something very hard. But uh, beyond that, there were no other uh, outside physical injuries. The officers suspected the victim wasn't from Knoxville. He was wearing very expensive jump clothing. Uh, it appeared to be um, things that we would say were high dollar, which you don't normally find on most uh, area skydivers. We started looking for ID. We found his wallet, and inside the wallet, we found a driver's license uh, to an Andrew Thornton out of Kentucky, but only to find behind that uh, another Kentucky driver's license with his picture, but with another name. The other name was Andrew Bourbon. Officers had no way of knowing which name, if either, was real. But it was the next discovery that stunned Knoxville police. Inside a large black duffel bag strapped to the victim, investigators found small parcels each containing what appeared to be a kilo of unprocessed cocaine. From the markings on the drugs, investigators deduced they were packaged outside the U.S. Neighbors were drawn to the scene, but couldn't give the officers any information. No one had seen or heard anything suspicious that morning or the night before. The officers took the evidence found on the body back to headquarters to examine it. They were looking for additional clues to the parachutist's identity. The man was carrying various handguns. We start through the backpack 
to find a fully loaded semi-automatic 9mm plus the Derringer which is the type of a weapon that's going to be used by someone who is either working in a, a deep cover operation or uh, is, a, is a survivalist, someone who's going to have a backup weapon, which a lot of police officers carry. The guns were sent to the lab for testing. A pair of night vision goggles were even more puzzling. They were only available to the military. There was no serial number to use to trace the goggles' origin. He had all kinds of evidence that showed that this was a really bad actor, someone who meant to survive whatever situation he found himself in. A notebook contained names and odd groupings of numbers. It appeared to be some kind of numeric code, though Detective Day was unsure of its meaning. Inside the bag, investigators also found South African gold Krugerrands. That's an expensive membership. They suspected the man carried gold so he could flee to another country and easily convert the untraceable Krugerrands to local currency. Most disturbing to the officers, however, was the discovery of Teflon-coated bullets. Ammunition that is Teflon-coated and is only used to penetrate body armor, which normally is worn by law enforcement officers. These bullets are, are normally called cop killers, and individuals who uh, are dead set on not being captured will use that type of ammunition. Detectives scrutinized the two Kentucky licenses. They placed calls to authorities there to determine if either was legitimate. There was no idea by anyone in the uh, investigative area as to who he really was. Once we found the uh, passport, driver's license, uh, we started trying to pull uh, everything together to make a positive identification. They also found a membership card to an exclusive resort in Miami. In the dead man's pocket, investigators found a key with some strange numbers on it. Yeah, that's uh, that's an N number to uh, that's a tail number off of an aircraft. That's an aircraft key. Hmm. Detectives weighed the stash of cocaine. We don't normally come in contact with 34 kilos of coke, uh, over 80 pounds uh, at one time. Occasionally, we would get uh, involved with cases with pounds, but uh, nothing of this magnitude. The street value of the cocaine was almost $20 million. Too much for a small police department to protect. CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in 2021 on Saturday the 25th and 26th September. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, immerse yourself in forensic evidence, and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered with crime and investigation and a perfect opportunity to meet fellow true crime enthusiasts. Limited tickets are on sale now at crimecon.co.uk and we have an exclusive discount code for you. 
claim your discount, enter the code REAL at checkout. That's R-E-A-L, REAL. Head over to crimecon.co.uk now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fearing their precinct could be targeted by criminals desperate to get their hands on that much cocaine, they called for help. We contacted the Drug Enforcement Administration and told them what we had. Uh, we um, told them we had a large quantity of over uh, 70 pounds of cocaine and that we didn't want to keep it in our facility. The DEA had a vault that could secure it. The victim's main parachute hadn't been deployed, but his backup chute was open. Forensic technicians examined the dead man's equipment. They were looking for signs of sabotage. But the equipment appeared to be in perfect working order. It was unclear why the victim's primary chute hadn't deployed. He appeared to be an individual who knew exactly what he was doing, uh, which made the, the parachute accident uh, seem a, a somewhat strange to us. The officers would have to rely on other evidence to determine how and why the man died. Technicians examined the gun, but found no fingerprints, and gunmetal residue tests came back negative. It had not been fired recently. The county medical examiner began conducting an autopsy later that day. He hoped to find tattoos or other identifying marks. There were none. The medical examiner did find various injuries on the man's body that did not make sense. Bruises and contusions appeared inconsistent with a fall to the ground. They uh, could find no external injuries or, or no bullet wounds or stab wounds or anything of that nature. And it appeared the man had been dead for several hours, perhaps even before he struck the ground. According to the preliminary autopsy report, something or someone had hit this man before his fall or in midair. It was looking less and less like an accident and more like murder. While investigators grappled with the puzzling clues, the remarkable tale quickly became the media's lead story in Knoxville and across the South. A man was found dead in the driveway in Knoxville. Police are still investigating the circumstances surrounding this bizarre death. Officials ask that anyone with any information about the incident Please contact the Knoxville police. We hadn't rolled him over yet. The publicity paid off. A ranger with the U.S. Forest Service in Georgia made a puzzling discovery. 
black duffel bag, identical to the ones found near the parachute victim, was snagged in a tree. Another one lay on the ground. The bags contained another 150 kilos of cocaine. Several more duffel bags were found strewn in the Chattahoochee National Forest and in Cherokee County, Georgia, just south of Knoxville. From the location of the drop sites and the amount of cocaine, authorities speculated the drugs had come from somewhere south of the U.S., perhaps Central or South America. Media coverage of the event led investigators to their next big lead. Back in Tennessee, an employee at a small Knoxville airport contacted authorities. He'd seen the news and had found something he thought was perhaps linked to their case. One of the uh, maintenance men from the airport had discovered uh, a parachute and a reserve chute and a, uh, a green jumpsuit. The gear had been hidden behind a building. Investigators suspected the gear could have belonged to a second parachutist. Yes, it is. I didn't. I just found it. He probably survived the jump and hid the chute before he made his getaway. Lieutenant Day. The detectives soon received yet another call, this time from officials in North Carolina. The Drug enforcement uh, investigators uh, called and stated that uh, the remains of a plane had been recovered uh, on North Carolina and that it might be associated with the parachutists that uh, had landed in Knoxville. Clay County, North Carolina lay due east of Knoxville. Detective Day had no idea what he might find at the crash site. They hoped that somewhere in the twisted wreckage lay the clue to the identity of the mysterious dead man. They got a break when a fisherman in North Carolina contacted the local sheriff to report a plane crash. The accident occurred on September 11th at around 1 a.m. A local fisherman who was night fishing on a lake near the Cherokee National Forest uh, heard a low-flying aircraft approaching his location, and then it flew over him, which kept his attention. And then the next thing he notices is the flames from the impact of the aircraft hitting the mountain. It took five hours for Detective Day and federal agents to hike to the crash site. It was a very devastating crash site. Uh, you had trees which had been sheared off three, four feet above the ground, and there were probably five to 10 of those, uh, which tell me that there was a major impact. When we, when we got to the aircraft, uh, one of the main things we were looking for was if there were any other bodies. The plane was destroyed, but didn't have much burn damage. Apparently, there had been little fuel left when it crashed. There was no luggage, no flight documents, and no bodies. There were even few seats. Most had been ripped out, leaving the cabin hollow, a standard procedure in drug runs. 
the end number on the aircraft matched the end number on the key that we found on the body in Knoxville. That was the connection for us between this aircraft and our skydiver. Like the odd clues found on the body in Knoxville, the plane crash didn't seem logical. Of course, we had no other bodies, uh, no other drugs within the aircraft. Uh, we were still very perplexed on uh, why he was jumping out of a perfectly good aircraft and putting it on automatic pilot, which was very evident from the uh, wreckage and the levers and things in the wreckage. The wreckage offered no new clues as to the reason why the man jumped from the plane. They were also no closer to finding the identity of his accomplice. The trip to North Carolina left authorities with even more questions. But the biggest question was finally about to be answered. Word had come from Lexington, Kentucky on the identity of the dead man. One of the man's IDs was a fake, the other legitimate. Fingerprints confirmed it. Their victim's name was Andrew Carter Thornton II. He was a former Lexington police officer and was known to Kentucky State Police Detective Don Powers. When I first met Drew Thornton, um, I was impressed that he was a, a go-getter, hard worker, um, a good officer. Years earlier, Drew had been a member of the police department's first narcotics squad. The squad found early success cleaning up Lexington's streets, but they soon began to gather some unwanted attention. Their drug busts had become marred by a string of complaints from defendants about their treatment at the hands of the police. I was aware in the mid-70s uh, of certain problems that uh, were occurring within the Lexington Police Department, there had began to be all kinds of rumors about how their drug unit was operating, some of the strong arm tactics. Growing allegations against the narc squad also attracted the attention of the FBI. Special Agent Jim Huggins. They were kind of a, a rogue group that pretty much skirted the law and uh, did a lot of questionable things in, uh, in enforcing drug laws around the University of Kentucky campus and the Lexington community. Uh, they were allegedly involved in planting drugs on suspects, uh, stealing drugs out of evidence lockers and, and reselling them and, and this sort of activity. Thornton and his crew were moved to other positions. The FBI learned it came too late. Drew Thornton and his friends had made many contacts within the drug world. The more we got into it, the more people started to surface, and then it was almost like a, a web. It started expanding out into different crimes, different people, different states, different countries. The Kentucky State Police and the FBI opened investigations into the activities of Drew Thornton. They learned he had partnered with a friend of his, Frank Barkley, and opened a security business. 
Barkley was a, another Drew Thornton type guy, very smart, very impressive. And if these guys, Thornton and uh, Barkley, had put all those talents to good use, there's no telling what they could have done. But unfortunately, they decided to go the other way. The men ran with a rich crowd. Wherever Drew and Frank were, money was always being thrown around. The word on the street was their security business was an alleged front for the sale and distribution of marijuana. We were mainly gathering intelligence reports and formulating a plan and trying to somehow verify some of these allegations. Barkley was the money man. The two were known simply as the company. Drew Thornton handled the supply side, acquiring weapons, vehicles, and drugs. The duo had a reputation of doing anything for a buck. I think that Thornton prided himself on living on the edge, on being a soldier of fortune type person, on uh, being almost invincible that he could do anything. Serial number one. Because of his dangerous lifestyle, Lieutenant Jerry Day and the Knoxville police were beginning to suspect that their skydiver had not died from a mere accident. Forty-eight hours after the skydiving death of ex-cop Drew Thornton, the FBI took over the case. Newspapers shouted the mysterious details of his death, and Kentucky residents were shocked. Lexington Herald reporter Valerie Honeycutt. He came from a very well-respected family, and uh, there was a lot of people in Lexington who just had a hard time believing that he was involved in um, drug smuggling. Lexington, Kentucky is surrounded by beautiful country and lavish horse farms where some of the world's best thoroughbreds are raised. Drew Thornton was well known to the region's wealthiest families. The day after Drew's death, federal agents, armed with a search warrant, entered the exclusive Lexington home where Thornton lived. At the scene of his death, agents had been left some enticing clues. Cocaine, guns and ammunition, and the parachute of an unknown accomplice who had escaped. They hoped that somewhere on his property, they would find a clue to explain the bizarre circumstances surrounding his death and lead them to his accomplice. But a search of Thornton's house turned up no new evidence. FBI Special Agent Jim Huggins. Someone had already been there and uh, taken whatever incriminating information there might have been. Investigators turned to Thornton's former employer for help. Lexington Police Detective John Bizak. We were asked if there were people who could identify not only his body, but certain things that uh, they'd found on his person. We recognized telephone numbers and names in the address book. Uh, we, of course, there were several names and telephone numbers which we were familiar with. One of the names in the phone book was Wes Trotter. 
He was a close friend of Thornton's, and both men had been questioned in an unsolved missing persons case years earlier. Socialite Amanda Finley left her parents' home on January 25th, 1977, for a routine appointment. Uh, about 5.15 in the afternoon, she turned left, traveled south uh, in her car, heading to a doctor's appointment, and was never seen again. She had talked to her father earlier in the afternoon, said that she would be home for supper. Her parents called police after not hearing from Amanda in four days. The Finleys told police it wasn't unusual for their daughter to take off. But she would always call. When her boss confirmed she hadn't shown up for work, the family knew something was wrong. A week after her disappearance, Amanda's car was found abandoned in a local parking lot. The storekeeper said the car had been parked there for several days. Her coat uh, and other belongings were found in the vehicle, but her car keys and her purse were gone. Forensic evidence technicians combed her car, looking for fingerprints, blood, or any signs of foul play. They found nothing. Months passed, and the Finley case turned cold. The press, however, did not forget her. Reporter Valerie Honeycutt. Amanda Finley was a beautiful young woman uh, from a, a well-known family. What police knew from the onset was that she had had some connection to Drew Thornton and Wes Trotter. Exactly what that connection was has never really been clear. Amanda had been dating Wes Trotter, a member of Lexington's narcotics squad, at the time of her disappearance. Her parents feared he knew something about their daughter's whereabouts. Trotter and Thornton were interviewed very early in the investigation about their knowledge of uh, Finley and what information they had as to when they saw her last. Trotter claimed that he used her as an informant on drug investigations uh, off and on, but other than that, had no relationship with her. He also claimed he hadn't seen her for weeks. There were allegations that came from personal friends of Finley that she had told them she was involved with Trotter. But Thornton claimed he only knew Finley through Trotter and had no idea where she might be. Then, Detective Bizak got a lead on the missing girl. We had telephone records uh, from Finley that showed she had placed some calls to Florida prior to her disappearance. We also had information that a person who appeared to be her had been sighted in Daytona Beach, Florida. That was certainly enough to warrant um, a trip to Florida to determine if there could be any other uh, eyewitnesses or any evidence that she was in fact there. The phone calls had come from a restaurant. Yes, recognize this girl. There, Detective Bizak met witnesses who identified Amanda from photos. Lexington police believed their victim was, in fact, a runaway. 
More than six months after Amanda Finley vanished, a man came upon an unusual find that made detectives question their conclusion. A purse floating near the banks of the Kentucky River. By analyzing the contents, the purse was identified as Amanda Finley's. Fearing the missing person's case could possibly be a homicide investigation, the river was dragged. The dock lay just a short distance from Drew Thornton's property, 70 acres of land he co-owned with Wes Trotter. Kentucky State Police Lieutenant Don Powers. As a result of that purse being found, we then did become involved in some aspects of that investigation in so much as trying to, uh, to see if we could locate Amanda. It seemed that Drew Thornton was constantly surrounded by mystery and possibly murder. The list of those who could have wanted Drew killed was growing. In next week's episode, the mystery deepens and the investigation intensifies as police discover more about the extent of the company's operation. Can they work out the events leading up to Andrew Thornton's death? This podcast episode is based on the documentary Dangerous Company. It is written by Joseph Amadio, directed by Joe Wiecka and Dave Haycox, and produced by New Dominion Pictures. You can watch this story, plus many others, in full length for free if you go to Real Stories' YouTube channel. I am your host, Stephanie Bauer. And if you liked this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review and help us spread the word. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Real Stories Docs. That's one word, Real Stories Docs spelled D-O-C-S. See you next week. Until then, stay safe. Mm-hmm.